You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. Hello to all the listeners of the Dietitian Connection podcast series. I'm your host, Jacinta Sherlock, and I'm a new graduate dietitian from La Trobe University. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Anna Boltong. Anna completed a Bachelor of Applied Science and Health Promotion in 1996 and went on to complete her master's degree in both nutrition and dietetics and gastronomy. She has postgraduate qualifications in teaching and learning in higher education. Her PhD utilised both qualitative and quantitative research findings to develop improved mechanisms for supporting both clinicians and patients to better manage cancer treatment-induced taste problems. Welcome, Anna, to the Dietitian Connection podcast series. I'm incredibly excited to be speaking with you, so thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Having heard you present on your career journey just prior to graduating, I was inspired by your remarkable achievements in such a short period of time and I have no doubt our listeners will be too. So to start with, could you please tell us a little bit about why you first decided to study nutrition and dietetics? I think I had uh, an affinity for humanities, and really I was fascinated by food at the basic level and the fact that you could manipulate your own health or the health of others for the better through the food that you chose to eat, I think at the most fundamental. And I was interested in people Uh, Ironically, science didn't feel like my strongest point. Uh, I liked sort of health and human development, those kinds of subjects, and food was certainly my passion. However, nutrition is is where I felt that I could lend more in in a career sense. Mm -hmm. So the interplay between food, health, human development, and nutrition really guided your path. Can you share with us where your career journey first started and the pathway that has evolved thus far? Sure. I think it's been quite typical, at least at the start, with respect to focusing on a clinical foray and very much as a student graduating uh, in 1998, that was where the emphasis was placed in the profession. And so, again, as was quite typical at that time, I spent two years working as a clinical dietitian with a tiny bit of community input uh, out in Hillsville before I moved to the UK and worked as a dietitian there. Uh, I've spent about seven years of my career working in London uh, and not always as a dietitian, but certainly that's where it started. My background before dietetics was as a um, in health promotion was my undergraduate degree. And so I felt that I had other skills um, to offer, I suppose, as a background. Uh, and in London, I found myself working in public health because of some of those opportunities that I'd, I had to study and, and to work before I left Melbourne for the UK. Uh, I've, I returned from the UK eight years ago now and before leaving my last job was heading up the dietetics courses at London Metropolitan University so I suppose I'd taken an academic turn and uh, came back to work at Deakin University 
on my return and subsequently worked as a nutrition manager at a couple of hospitals in Melbourne. But I felt that uh, given I'd done quite a lot of things and the opportunities in London were so great, it meant that I had quite senior roles uh, at quite an early stage of my career, that there really wasn't much more I could do unless I took the plunge into doing a PhD. And it, it certainly wasn't something that I'd always set my mind on, like I said, I didn't feel like science or research was my strong point, but that's where I found myself um, with a a second master's of gastronomy uh, sandwiched in between there on my return to Melbourne. So it feels like it's it's quite a long story. I'm sure some of it will play out in in this interview, but um, that's, that's where I found myself and now I'm back in a role that's slightly removed from dietetics and it's I suppose, a health policy research uh, support role in the broader sense and it, it feels like all the pieces of my career have contributed to the role that I currently hold now that, that taps into all of those pieces. Wow, such a diverse range of experiences. You mentioned you did your second Master's, a Master's of Gastronomy. It sounds like an incredibly fascinating topic. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about this and how you intend to use your skills and knowledge in dietetics and health promotion? Sure. I suppose, like I said, food is my passion and nutrition is the science behind it. And the Masters of Gastronomy was quite a unique course. Uh, I undertook it in 2011 uh, and it was at that time one of three programs on offer across the world. There's one in Italy, um, one in Canada, and one that was offered through the University of Adelaide in its gastronomy program in conjunction with the Cordon Bleu. Uh, So I'd read about it and I was looking for something else to do, I guess. I found that the work that I was doing in Melbourne after returning from the UK meant that I had capacity to study something additional on the side and I sometimes describe it as a very expensive hobby but felt like I wanted to give some structured time to this study which was really about food culture, it was about um, lots of the things that we'd studied in dietetics but I suppose applied in a different way. It was It was about the history of food, it was about societies and food and food convivial dining it was about um the history of cuisines and um all sorts of fascinating things that i think is the fun stuff of of dietetics that's getting woven into more of the training programs that we see today that that just wasn't on offer 20 years ago and so like i said rather than just thinking you know, it's something I could get to on the weekends or in my spare time really to to carve out that time and make a a dedicated uh, commitment to studying this was was really what led me down that path. And with the program, there's different exit points and um, the most full commitment you can make is to do a research dissertation at the end of the training program, which I elected to do. Um, And that's when I delved a bit deeper into Uh, taste and how uh, I guess we experience taste and taste dysfunction. I was working in oncology 
uh, at the time. And so I, I was really influenced by the patient's needs that I was seeing at that time. And I suppose my own professional vulnerability, which meant that when patients brought taste problems to me, I knew as a profession we weren't very consistent in the way that we managed that. And I certainly felt that I had a lot of doubt and question whether I'd done justice for my patients when uh, I was trying to support them with those problems that they were describing, which was really getting in the way of, of their nutritional intake and certainly their enjoyment of food. And so the dissertation that I focused on was uh, a systematic review looking at the uh, to what extent taste problems uh were at play with people receiving chemotherapy and also what kind of food or hedonic problems such as um, appetite and food liking um, influenced people in, in that situation as well. So uh, I guess that, that's quite a long story, but this is beautiful artistic. It's a Masters of Art, so it wasn't a sciencey thing, but the research dissertation brought that component into it and that was really without me knowing before I embarked on it, the pathway to my PhD. Yeah, fascinating. Can you share with us what your PhD findings included and how this translated across and was applied into a clinical practice setting? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a question of the day, Jacinta. Um, My question was about exploring taste dysfunction in people receiving chemotherapy. So it was a direct follow-on from the master's dissertation that I did. There are a number of studies in it, some were patient-facing and some were clinician-facing, and I think it goes back to that clinical frustration that I spoke about, and that's often how research questions come up and they get answered. It's when we don't have tools of the trade, um, we don't have enough knowledge, so we need to create new knowledge. So really um, some of the things that it showed is that dietitians um, don't feel well-equipped to support people who have taste problems, and that's partly because there aren't any clinical guidelines governing that. So um, in the world of cancer, there's other quite prescriptive guidelines for treatment-related symptoms such as nausea and vomiting or um, oral mucositis, for example. But those things don't exist when it comes to taste problems and dietitians or or any um, of the medical team have – no one has any – routine models of assessing taste uh, or its problems. So that's what I guess I set out to explore. What What is it that we could do to change the way we support people who have these problems? And actually what was very clear quite early on is that we're confused about what the sense of taste is. So we use the word taste in a very colloquial sense and actually uh, taste is just the sense that relates to what we perceive on the taste buds, whereas flavour, and we use the two terms interchangeably, is something much broader than that. Um, and it, it's, it also includes smell, um, texture, temperature, and those hedonic inputs I talked about, so appetite or food liking, which are different senses from taste and they're different constructs. But um, what the PhD really helped pull apart is what those constructs were and when we talk to patients how we might start to separate some of them out because you really can't start treating a problem until you've defined it adequately. So that the one of the end products of the PhD was something called Boltong's Taxonomy of Taste that's been published and it really 
used was able to use patient language when they discuss what they call taste um, to, to pull apart what the different domains are and what as dietitians we can start then doing about it and to give you an analogy, there was a lot of work in the 1970s on the language of pain. For example, if people use the word stabbing pain or throbbing pain, aching, tingling, they refer to different causes of pain and different clinical conditions. And so really that's where I was trying to go with the PhD. Um, and I guess how it's changed practice is that that evidence uh, is is new. It's been published. There's lots of papers out there. There's also some really neat um, resources that dietitians can use on the Cancer Council Victoria or Cancer Council. Sorry, it's, it's national. Um, the resources are national. I'm here in Victoria, and that's where I work at the moment. Um, but we've got patient-facing guidelines for managing taste problems, um, so there's better information for patients, and there's also better information for clinicians Um through the Cancer Institute New South Wales. Mm, that must be incredibly rewarding to see an outcome such as Boltong's taxonomy of taste come from such a big project like your PhD. Congratulations. Thank you. It, it, it is incredibly rewarding and I suppose for me the most important part of it is that it is translatable. You know, we don't um, go into it just to have a big thesis sitting on a shelf at the end of it and to be honest, the translational pieces are the pieces that take the longest. It's very, or it's easier to design a study and, and kind of go through the motions of doing the research and, and building the networks. But really the important parts to me are about sharing that knowledge and, and certainly I've had many opportunities to do that through um, delivery of education sessions, through uh, international work that I've been doing and teaching dietetic students and others and that's certainly part one of the most rewarding parts um, of my job yeah fantastic that leads into my next question just perfectly the communication and connection with others within the profession is what you've found just described as the most rewarding aspect one important aspect to i guess a career or working life is mentoring and that sharing and teaching that you alluded to can you share a bit about how mentoring has influenced your career and how you feel you've worked with mentees to influence their career? Uh, thank you. That's a really nice question to talk about um, because it's they're two of my favourite things and I feel very, very grateful to a whole raft of mentors that I've had over my career and I think you always remember people that invested in you, that gave you opportunities or gave you the benefit of the doubt and and through that really um, drew you in to capitalise on the knowledge that they were willing to share with you. And, and you know, I remember that in a wonderful um, supervisor at the Austin Hospital um, many, many years ago as a student, Sue Race, um, was someone that really had an impact on me and um, other people like my first dietetics manager, Marianne Silvers, who's now at, at Southern Health and, um Definitely through my PhD, Professor Sancho Aranda, who's now the Cancer Council uh, Australia CEO, and certainly Professor Russell Keast, who um, leads up a sensory lab at Deakin University. And, and these aren't just names, but these are people that really, I suppose, were generous in sharing the knowledge in areas that I didn't have as much of. Um, and they, they were honest people and they were able to help me to be brave, I guess, and, and take leaps of faith um, 
knowing that I had a support crew around me um, and that there was no other choice but to just keep bettering um, yourself, bettering your knowledge and, and bettering what you're then able to offer for your patients. So I know that sounds a little bit cryptic, but I, I suppose they're, they're role models for me in, in different ways. Um, and, you know, we learn from our peers as well, don't we? We sort of observe the behaviours, the professional or the personal behaviours um, like humility that we can really um, take a lead from from others when we, we see that done very well. Um Mentoring is something that I've done in different forms, I suppose, um, you know, firstly through students, uh, through, you know, other members of my team as I've become a, a manager and a leader over various teams. And one of the, the more recent mentoring activities that I've undertaken, which gives me a great deal of satisfaction, is being able to mentor overseas dietitians who are applying for equivalency and DAA registration here in Australia. And um, for me, I have real empathy for people's situations where they're skilled, they might not work here, but they have uh, a lot of life and professional experience and being able to support them to contribute that in Australia if they're looking to set up a life here is something that um, I feel that I can I can reach out and do and I, I suppose for me time is such a precious commodity and if I can lend that uh, for the better of the profession and for people's lives and that's really exciting. So I have many examples but there's one example um, that, you know, I, I continue to be involved with uh, with a, a, a young dietitian who's been practicing uh, in the Philippines for, for many, many years and uh, is is looking to come and join her family who live in Australia. She works uh, in private practice or, or sort of physiotherapy-type clinic advising um, people in Qatar um, in the armed forces there. And I've worked with her to um, – we've been mentoring on Skype for over two years now and um, – I've been able to support her to, to meet uh, the requirements to be registered here and she's moving over to Australia later on this year. So I've really enjoyed the work that I've done with her. Um, I guess she showed a lot of promise from the start with regards to clinical reasoning and I think there's these barriers that people have such as um, English not being the first language or, or not being here to understand uh, the nuances of our profession. So if I, I was able to share that with her um, and help her forge a career here then then that's something that's kind of one of my um proudest moments yeah and I think it's such a wonderful noble and humble thing that you've done and it's just so reflective of what so many people within the profession are like and how generous people are with their time particularly as you mentioned time is just such a precious and rare commodity I continue to be amazed at how generous people are with their time and willingness to impart information despite how busy they are it's just such an incredible trait I guess our profession has. I agree with you Jacinta and I, I think people are getting better at asking for the time as well. I think we, you know, over the course of, of my career I've certainly seen, uh, I think the profession become a bit more assertive and, and certainly the graduates that are coming out now um, have a level of professional maturity that perhaps wasn't there um, when when I was graduating and I think we're better at upskilling people about developing their networks and knowing that they don't have to, to do things on their own. 
and, and also upskilling people to interact with other professionals in a respectful way that uh, allows them to uh, spend the time to help one another um, more easily. Mm-hmm. You've touched on one of my favourite topics to discuss and, that, discuss, and that's networking. Can you share a bit about how networking both within and externally has assisted you in your career? Yeah, I think we we forget how small the profession is and we sometimes forget that that the networks will follow us for our whole career and they, they require cultivating. And I, I think, you know, when I set out as a dietitian, I didn't, I probably wasn't mindful of that. It just, it just, it was just a natural thing to do. You know, I talked about some of my earlier mentors. Uh, to me, it was important to continue to keep in touch with them, to continue to show gratitude, to continue to, update them on perhaps where you were traveling or working from time to time. Um, and what it meant is that those people kept in touch with your career. They were interested too. And um, if, you know, networks were needed to tap back into for any sort of reason, those people were there. It's, I feel like I collect dietitians in a way and you, you move through um, your career and you can always defer to them for advice, um, for helping to introduce you to someone else if, if that person uh, would help progress towards some of the goals that you, you're currently trying to achieve in the workplace. And I, I don't mean personal goals. I mean um, if you're trying to create um, a, a program or a service or you want to tap into someone else's knowledge, um, having those networks where people have expertise in areas that you don't and putting together a high-functioning team to be able to do that uh, is a very fruitful way to work. Yeah, right. So with your background in health policy, health promotion and research, where do you see the opportunities for dietitians to step out from the crowd and really have their voices heard? I think what's really important is to challenge the status quo, uh, to not accept what we always do as a given, um, to question how we can do things better uh, and to question why things are as they are if, if they don't seem right. Um, and I, I suppose I'm talking about perhaps pieces of nutritional advice that might have might not make sense to you. Um, you know, I remember reading pieces of information on patient education leaflets about, you know, drinking milk with soda water um, to help with nausea or using a, a, a straw to bypass the taste buds if, if things don't taste good. And when I thought about putting some of those things in, in practical terms, they just don't make sense to me. Um, you know, and I think we, we kind of read some of these things and we go along with some of these things, but really questioning what the, the basis for some of our advice is or, or, or delving into the evidence base to see that it's, that it's there and that there is an evidence base for the advice we're giving is the responsibility of every dietitian, not just people that are doing research and not just people that are setting the policy. But the researchers and the policymakers can certainly make it easier for their other colleagues to access that information. Um, so I think, you know, standing out is about 
knowing where you can contribute if if we don't have adequate tools in a certain area or a certain space and you know that's not something that necessarily comes on graduating it's about judgment calls that get built on uh, after you know a significant experience in the field yeah that's fantastic advice Anna one thing that was really evident from hearing you talk when you presented to us at La Trobe just prior to graduating was that you've really displayed high-level leadership qualities in all the positions that you've held right from graduating through to now. What does leadership in dietetics mean to you and what advice would you have for students and early career professionals entering the profession? Well, leadership is such a broad term, isn't it? I, I think leadership is about people who are visionaries or having having a vision and and being able to sell it to others. So a, a visionary who understands the implication of their ideas from the bottom upwards. So um, I suppose, you know, leadership is about making decisions and not shying away from difficult decisions. But a true leader is someone who shares the rationale for doing that and that's what I mean about sort of sharing or understanding the implication of their ideas from the bottom upwards. So being quite practical in understanding what management decisions mean for the wider team on a day-to-day level. What does that mean people in my team actually have to go and do? Um, is that feasible? Is it practical? Is it enjoyable? Um, you know, having, I guess, been at um, – you know, at the the grassroots level, if you like, um, and and working backwards um, is is a strategy that I admire in leaders. Uh, and I think what leaders are able to do is admit that they don't know everything, um, but they can find good people and build teams, knowing that other people have greater skills than them. But Together, the power of those teams can achieve many great things. Wow, that's a really lovely way of describing the characteristics of a leader. Visionary leadership isn't something that is written about quite a lot, and it's a really, really unique and lovely term. Thank you for sharing and introducing visionary leadership to to us and our listeners. Um, It is a difficult one, I, I guess, to understand, but I think once you've seen a visionary leader um, and you've seen the magic of, of how they work and how they're able to bring people on a journey with them, then it's it's really clear to understand how one might emulate that themselves. I suppose the, the other part of your question, which was about advising uh, graduates about leadership, you know, leadership doesn't mean managing a dietetics department. Leadership means putting up your hand to go down the path least trodden uh, if there's a clear professional need for something. Um, And that might mean, you know, taking on a a task, chipping into the department by um, agreeing to, you know, investigate a a piece of quality work or, um, you know, helping to mentor others or, volunteering to contact someone in another department to find out more information about a certain topic or presenting into their team meeting or, you know, initiating 
bringing in an expert or, or someone that can help plug an information gap for you and your team to come and share their experience. So there, there's, I think leadership manifests itself in, in different ways and it's about looking every single day, where can I display some professional maturity, where can I help my colleagues, where can I help um, better what I do, how can I advocate for my patients and, and how do we um, contribute in the most full way that we can. So like I say, it's going to look different at, at different levels of your career, but it's really about keeping an open mind, being brave um, and being generous in the way that you share knowledge and, and use your time. Yeah, some absolutely great advice there, Anna. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to share with our listeners your really remarkable and inspiring career. I feel incredibly privileged we have had the opportunity to interview you and you've shared some real gems of advice. I feel we can all apply and integrate into our own work settings and career. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jacinta. It was all my pleasure. To all our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this Dietitian Connection podcast. We have links to the resources Anna discussed during her interview at dietitianconnection.com forward slash podcasts. Please let us know your thoughts on the podcast below or via email and please share the insights from Anna's podcast with your colleagues and friends. And if you haven't already subscribed, sign up with Dietitian Connection to automatically receive the weekly podcast directly to your inbox. Have a great week and we look forward to bringing you another amazing edition of the Dietitian Connection podcast series next week.